Doug Scheiding of Rogue Cookers, baseball fan and barbecue world champion. You are listening to the Baseball and Barbecue Show with Lynn and Jeff. Episode 120 of Baseball and BBQ, home of the Daily Double. We will explain that in a moment, but I'm Lynn Aberman, joined by my incredible co-host, Jeff Cohen. Welcome, Jeff, to the show. Thank you very much, Leonard. <laughs> I would say the personable Leonard Aberman. Well, thank you very much. This is a uh, special episode because we wrap up the Artie Davis and Denny Mike interview. And we also have on Perry Barber, yes. who female umpire, I, you know, I don't even like saying female umpire, but that is. She is a pioneer. Let's put it that way. She's, she's a right. pioneer. Pioneer in a number of things. Oh, yeah. Pioneer. Musically opened for Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel and Hall and & Oates and Jeopardy tr- champion. And that's why I mentioned, yes. Yeah. That's why I mentioned Daily Double. Because if you guys like Jeopardy, I think you're going to enjoy, I think we play a little bit of Jeopardy between Jeff and Perry. So, and, and Jeff, I'm going to say that the second part of the interview with Artie Davis and Denny Mike is better than the first half. I, I just found it to be, I don't know, I, we just all of a sudden, it became like a real just conversation, like we're sitting in our living room just you know, having having a good time, and it was just a lot of fun. Absolutely, I mean, it was a, it was a great interview, and can't wait to get back to it. Uh, but before we do, I just want to remind everybody that to contact the show, you can give us a call at five one six eight five five eight two one four. Our email is baseballandbbq at gmail You know, we have a Facebook page. Leave a comment, baseball and bbq. Tweet us at the Twitter. At baseball and BBQ. Instagram is baseball and barbecue, where barbecue is all stalled out. Our website is www.baseballandbbq.weebly.com. Please go on Apple and, and please rate, review us. We'd love to see your comments. And Jeff, I know that you are mad as hell and you're not going to take it. So for those of you who love Jeff's rants, stay tuned to the end of the show. Because you are going to hear a good one. No promises. <laughs> <laughs> so, Len, why don't we get right to Denny Mike and Artie Davis, part two. Artie, back to oh, when we last left Artie Davis. <laughs> Artie, 
I did some of what I love to call it. Well, it is true. It's stalking, internet Trolling. stalking, trolling. <laughs> yeah, okay. and uh, of course, and I and I love the fact that you have a Wikipedia page, and it's Artie A. Davis, aka yeah. Remus Powers, PhB. So there's there's two right. things I want to address. One, okay, uh, tell us about the Remus Powers name, and then tell okay. us about the PHB, which is a very special designation. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Remus Powers. I went to college in Iowa. Uh, Long story short, the dean of the college is a small church college called Westmar, which is no longer in existence. Anyway, he was a preacher in Oklahoma City, and they were starting a wrestling program up in Iowa. That's the last place I ever dreamed I would live. But he said, you come on up here, join our wrestling team, because I was a wrestler in high school, and I'll give, I'll let you stay in my basement free in exchange for babysitting and snow shoveling and lawn mowing. So I went up there, and it looked good, so I took it. And I met this good-looking blonde from Minnesota, and I started courting her, and I developed a pen name named Remus Powers. I wrote doggerel, which at the time I thought was poetry, but uh, it worked because we've been married 56 years. <laughs> so wow, anyway, nice. Remus, when I was five years old, I saw Song of the South, the Walt Disney movie. Loved those stories for Br'er Rabbit and Br'er Bear and Br'er Fox. And that's that's a whole other story that uh, ever since then, I've been a collector of Jan- uh, Joel Chandler Harris's books very interesting fellow. So I took Remus, the name Remus from the Uncle Remus stories. And Powers was a mechanic in the shop where my dad worked. He was this cool James Dean type. He had wire rim glasses and didn't talk much. Just kind of a cool guy. And I thought, I told my dad, I'm going to be a mechanic like Powers when I grow up. And he said, no, you're going to go to college. Well, I, I worked for a summer after a hailstorm with my dad in the shop, measuring Lincoln Lincoln Town cars with my with the sandpaper, and uh, I decided, well, I think I better go to college. So I did. I told you how I got to Iowa. Remus Powers was my pen name in college, and then when I decided to do the Diddy Wah Diddy, our daughter said, "Well, Daddy, you need a barbecue name," and I said, "Well." I'll stick with Remus Powers. And then since I was a philosophy major, I decided, well, I'm going to give myself a doctor of barbecue philosophy degree. So I added a PhD to that. And now I, t- I like to tell people philosophers were, or barbecuers were the original philosophers. They used to sit around the campfire talking about the meaning of life, feeding barbecue. That's where we get the expression, I have a bone to pick with you. Oh, that's a good yeah. one. I makes, did not know that. Makes a good story. Yeah. <laughs> makes a good story, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> anyway, I've found with philosophy and sociology, you can study anything and be curious about it and excited about it and connect the dots. Just a, a bit about education. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead said the best way to learn is to dive into a subject deeply and then get up above it like you're in an airplane and connect the dots, connect it to the rest of the the world. And I've found that's a very useful, I wish I could do a better job 
or as at least as close a job as Whitehead did, but I try. It's a good approach to, and my my focus has been barbecue, but I like to relate it to the whole rest of the world. It is an interrelated world. Marty, I read I read something online. It said you write books and articles about barbecue, about barbecue yep. people, places, and all aspects of the art, science, sport, yep. history, philosophy, and here's the one that I wanted to really ask you about politics of barbecue so all of that's interesting but yeah i want to just ask you what do you mean by politics of barbecue well there's there's a book called that the settings in memphis politics has to do with power and of course barbecuers are the most humble people in the world they never brag you know all that and uh, they're they would never dare say that they're the best or that their city is the best, or I'm, I'm saying this all tongue in cheek. If you could see, yes. me, you'd, you'd know that. <laughs> so, there's a lot of politics in barbecue in uh, South Carolina or North Carolina. It's all hog pig barbecue. I call them hogmatists because, you know, they think if it's beef, it's not barbecue. Mm-hmm. If it's chicken, it's not barbecue. And, you know, to me, that's hogmatism. You asked anybody in Memphis, for example, where's the best barbecue? You could start an argument because they all have their favorite. Just about any city and in any city that's in the barbecue, there's always a lot to argue about. And, of course, politicians never argue. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but, too, they, you know, I mean, way, way back when, in the mid-1800s, I mean, if you were going to be campaigning, you were going to be doing it by, you know, well, come on to the board, come on, by, you know, uh, we're going to be uh, campaigning, but we're going to be uh, doing a barbecue. That's so true. people knew yeah. they were going to be getting free food, and hey, man, I'll listen to all your BS, but I'm going to go over there to eat. Yeah. So you better do exactly. it right. Yeah, that's true. Danny, do you do a lot of grilling? I do actually. I started grilling uh, when uh, when I was when I was a young man, and um, I've been grilling ever since. I won't give it up. Uh, my grill is right alongside my smoker. Yeah, and yeah, I I use it interchangeably. You know, grilling, yeah, smoking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, uh, Artie. No, I was just saying that there, there's one of the dogmas. I call it a dogma we learn early in barbecue is that if you're grilling, you're not barbecuing, but I've learned to disagree with that. If you're using fire and smoke, you know, if it's hot and fast or slow and low, it's still barbecue. I I put them all under the same umbrella. I know that's heresy to some people, but if you get really technical at what point, at what temperature is it grilling versus barbecue? I mean, there's a lot of, you can be really picky about it. So I just put both of them under the same umbrella. If you want to burn a hot dog and invite me over for a barbecue, I'm, I'm there. Yeah. And we can call it barbecue. And you know, what's what, what I found of late is, uh, and of course we know you do not get that classic umami of the Maillard reaction with the, uh, with slow cooking. Okay. Right. Now, mm-hmm. The Maillard reaction is that searing on a hot griddle or a hot wood surface 
that browns the meat and sears that meat. That's why they tell you to start it, you know, pat it dry. You want to put it on dry and let that thing just sizzle. Then you get the Maillard reaction, which creates this magical transformation. And I can't not do that. I've been, in fact, making these burgers. Of course, you guys are familiar with smash burgers. Mm-hmm. You take a two-ounce bottle ball of burger meat and you press it down with a number 10, not a number 10 can, but a 24-ounce vegetable can, and just boom, boom, and you, you got burgers in 35 seconds, for crying out loud, mm-hmm. that are just perfectly crispy brown on the outside you don't get that doing it low and slow i'll tell you that so yep. you know you're cooking and you might do you might have bar you might have brisket on you might have ribs and chicken and everything else on and the kids are going to want burgers and hot dogs for crying out loud so you've got to yep. really be resourceful in that respect and be able to cook the whole gamut barbecue's great grilling's great eating's great <laughs> agree agree with you. As a matter of fact, yeah. uh, our friend Greg Rempe of the Barbecue Central show, you know, we, we, I guess we're all name dropping, but he actually, his show is, you know, he it's the whole live fire cooking. And that's, I think that's the whole thing it encompasses. It's, it's yeah. live fire cooking, however you yeah. do it. Yeah, it, that's right. Great, so. Yeah, some yeah, people, true. I know some people don't consider using like a, a pellet grill barbecue because it uses electric to get the pellets into the hopper for the fire. I'm not, you know, you know, I, I don't want to start any controversy. That, that's a, some people you oh, know, believe that, you know, who knows? That's what I yeah, believe. That. I, Jeff, I have cooked with that for, since day one. I've been, I, I was weaned on a trader. Yeah. People swear by him. Yeah. My next door neighbor trader. He probably thinks I'm silly to get out there with my charcoal and my wood and yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can do a Southern Pride. You can do a trash can for crying yeah. out loud, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and dare oh, we good. say a gas grill. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, man. I'll tell you what, I'll never give it up. <laughs> I've got I've got a Weber Genesis 1. I believe it's 33 years old. I won't give it up. Not for all the bells and whistles of all the new and the greatest. And, the, and uh, I got my old tried and true. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now and then you need some battered fried chicken, too. It's not, it hasn't even touched any smoke. You could sprinkle some Denny Mike seasoning on. Hey, on I mean, how, about some, how about some grilled oysters, my friend? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Get- <laughs> Get some yeah, now we're going to bag it. Now it's not barbecue, but I'll tell you what, we're going to love it nonetheless. Take it to Jones Beach and have a ball. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> that, yeah. that, thank you guys for that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, we, yeah, bagels. Jeff, they got to have like barbecue bagels. <laughs> yeah. Why not? I, I've, you know, here we have bread donuts, I call them. I haven't had a real New York bagel. There's, there's one that comes close, but not. I had one a couple of weeks ago. My neighbors are from Brooklyn, and one of his buddies came up and brought a couple big bags of bagels. And boy, weren't yeah. we some happy about that. New York, yeah. They, they yeah. just don't make them any better. The sandwich is a bagel. I mean, I love an everything bagel, or now they've got flagels yeah. where, you know, it's the flat. 
So, you, yeah. you know, a lot of people take yeah. the dough out of the bagel. This is yeah. the crust. The cream cheese, the lox, uh, some onions, it, some yeah, tomato. Your oh, capers. Come on. You got to have capers. Yep. <laughs> you got to have Love it. And then Love you might it. as well swing by Katz's and get a pastrami sandwich while you're at it, okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, which brings me to Artie. What is the favorite? I say to you, Artie, this is the last barbecue meal you're going to have. What are you choosing as your protein of choice? Well, just off the cuff, I think of uh, beef and fries from Arthur Bryant's when he was alive. You know, was, I've had that would be heaven for me. The, he he fries those potatoes and pure lard 400 and some degrees makes them sweet he sort of par fries them first mm. and he fries a quarter so i'd say beef and fries at arthur bryant's if, nice. you know when he was alive <laughs> that and would be my ultimate nice denny what's wh- what is your ultimate choice i mean hands down as i said when i tasted my first portion of uh, Texas-style dry rub uh, uh, brisket. I was hooked. I mean, that's it. Give me brisket or give me death. Yeah. Yeah, That's great brisket, too. You know, you made me think of it. You mentioned Katz's, and it made me think of pastrami. I I love to make pastrami on the smoker. I really do. And you know what's amazing? You, I'd say nine Nine people out of the ten people you ask, well, uh, where, what do you think pastrami actually is? And where, where you know, they're going to say, uh, oh, is it pork? And then, oh, and then you tell them it's beef, and they're going to say, oh, it's beef. And then you yeah. tell them and go further and say, wait a minute, it's actually brisket. It's what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and they can't believe it. So, yeah, you know, cool. yes, you have the flat. Cut a brisket is Prince pastrami. Thank you very much. Yeah, and I think Meathead is the one who said Katz's was the original barbecue in in America. That's what he said. He had, he had it right. Yeah, that's right. It's Can't funny you it. mentioned Meathead. I just got a text from Ryan. He says he spent half the day with uh, Meathead today. Yeah, really? Well, yeah, lucky guy. Now in guy. in Chicago or in yeah, uh, yeah Meathead Goldwyn. Yeah, so no, well, yeah, he lives in Chicago. Yeah, amazing ribs. Yeah, no, yeah. well, actually, they were, of course, by phone or text or Zoom or whatever the hell it was. It might have been Zoom. Yeah, it's a, it might have been Zoom. Howdy, Danny Mike. I was super swamp. We had an in depth interview with Meathead this afternoon. Ah, very oh, yeah. nice. Then he's going to be spending two weeks in Houston with Blue Smoke Blair. Mm-hmm. She's huh. quite a. Uh, force out there on um, in the blogosphere now she's uh, really uh, made quite a name for herself so and uh, ryan's uh, ryan's running with the big dogs that's for dang sure well you know what we are too <laughs> we, we really are too and i mean you can't get much bow wow you guys you can't get much bigger you know than uh than the two of you so jeff i'm gonna be quiet for a minute uh-oh. <laughs> I know you have questions, so go ahead. I thought you did, but if you don't, well, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to interject right here because I just want to say I met Artie through the and it was a blessing, of course, but 
he made mention of the social aspect of barbecue. Right. And when it, we, we, we are so blessed when we get together and all we want to do is talk about how blessed we are to have been welcomed in to this community of people and taste and culture. It is absolutely, I mean, I've got a, I'm tingling right now, my back right now saying, so I just had to say that barbecue is, is gospel certainly to, to, to me, to Artie, to those that are, have been bitten by the bug and, uh, you know, have experienced the epiphany of, Quality barbecue, Artie. What do you say if you know the difference between a mick rib or a, or a you know a real rib, yeah. and you can be a barbecue yep. judge or something like that? I'm paraphrasing, yeah. but oh, you know, I mean, and then too, you know, we often say, well, you know what? Because we're judges, we judge the best, you know, in the business, and we get together and comment and say, man, they sure missed the mark this time, didn't they? And we'll say, well, you know what? But even lousy barbecue ain't that bad. <laughs> you know, so you know you can get away with a lot, and then of course it's all about that camaraderie and sharing, and uh, you know, kind of just saying, "Hey, man, we're very blessed to be uh, to be in this game." And I, I mean, I tell you, I feel that every day. Here, here, you know, I, I've said this before, and look, I'm not a professional barbecue. I'm a backyard guy, you know, hosting friends, but it's where we I, all started. Yeah, when I go to competition yeah. and when talking to People like yourselves. I mean, we talked to Sonny Moody. We talked to Leanne Whippin. We talked to Vic yeah. Clevenger. We've talked okay. to, you know, yeah. Greg Grant. Emily Detweiler. Emily Detweiler. These people, <laughs> they, they're, they're so open and friendly. And, and yeah. you know, they really want to, you know, even though they're in competition with each other, they're really happy for each yeah. other. You yeah, know, they help each other. They, it's just a wonderful, wonderful community. And I, I yeah, second what you say there, Denny Mike. Thank you. Yep. And Jeff, uh, you're done. Okay, I gave you the opportunity. I'm back. <laughs> I'm all right. Um, Artie, I got to ask you this. I also saw written on the internet. It says you initiated several barbecue rituals that add fun, magic, and significance to gatherings right. of the barbecue faithful. You, right. I, there are so many questions that would just come from that. Uh, <laughs> please tell well, me what that's all about. One of one of the rituals is the swearing in of judges at all the Kansas City Barbecue Society sanctioned contests. You have to take an oath to be a judge, and I wrote that oath originally with the first Diddy Wah Diddy sauce contest. And then later, the Barbecue Society asked if they could use it for the meat contest, so we adapted it to that. So that's one ritual. Another is unique to the Jack Daniels barbecue that we call the Jack. Denny Mike can testify to this. We give magic hickory nuts to each team, and they uh, reach into a bandana bag that's a bag is from a bandana that's been made into a bag anyway. Uh, a Jack and, Daniels bandana. Yeah, and they take one nut, and they always say, "Now, how do I know this is the magic nut?" You say, "Well." If you got the magic nut, we'll see you on the awards stage on Saturday. <laughs> so, that that's yeah. become a ritual. One fellow from Topeka, Kansas, who owned the barbecue place, died way too young. He was in his forties, and his wife told me, "You know, I buried him with 
those nuts in his hand because they were really special to him. And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we go that's, yeah, that's another ritual that uh, a lot of teams have their own rituals where they they'll take some gentleman jack or whatever their whiskey favorite whiskey is and toast and they'll have a you know some kind of mumbo jumbo uh, slogan to repeat that kind of thing i didn't invent that already let, let pardon me let me offer let me offer a real yeah. special one to me when we're at okay. the jack and this has been this has become uh absolutely you know uh, data good for anybody already created a um regrets pig uh, he had a guy who uh who was it um gary that uh that uh, welded that pig for you already tony stone okay tony that's stone. right yeah. and yeah. this massive pig okay beautiful you know kind of raw iron and everything else a heavy dog but he said anybody that has regrets can write them down and put them inside uh, Jasper the pig. And Artie's got another another bag. Yeah, Jack, Pardon yep. me, Artie, go ahead. It was Jack Daniels' first name was Jasper. We, we figured he didn't care too much for it. And maybe he regretted that name. So we named the pig Jasper. There you go. <laughs> and anyway, this pig is made so that we can actually, once it's on, Artie collects all of the regrets. That people write, and he puts it in a hop sack cloth bag. bag that he then, uh, and it has, he holds it up, and it's, you know, does it say just regrets already? No, it just says Jasper feels your pain. Oh, that's it. Jasper <laughs> feels your pain. That's what it is. It. Yep. So then he, you know, he, uh, he puts it all inside the pig, and uh, we got to go shopping that afternoon to get some uh, lighter fluid to uh, make sure that it uh, burns properly and the wood is you know they they got a big wood fire heck this uh at the jack the fireplace has got to be 10 feet wide by maybe six feet high so it's huge and this pig what's it weigh already it's going to weigh over 100 pounds of 150 pounds yeah we we have the takes a couple of us to throw it in well, we throw it in and light them, and, and all those regrets get burned up the chimney. What a ritual. I'll tell you, people are taking pictures. I mean, it's amazing. That's, that, that is special. Before it goes in the fire, the master distiller takes a sip of Jack Daniels oh, that's and right. passes it around and then pours the rest onto the regrets. Yeah. And that's been <laughs> going on since Jimmy Bedford was master distiller wow. and Jeff Arnett and... Last year was Chris Fletcher, the new master distiller. Yeah, we just broke in a new master distiller. Now we have a, a for the first time in the history, an assistant master distiller who's female, Lexi. A lady. She is great. I was glad to see that. Well, last year, Chris and Lexi did the honors of tasting the whiskey and dumping it on the press. <laughs> it was great. Yeah. It, it was great. It comes from... New Mexico, you know, the Zobra, they burn this old man of regrets. That's where I got the idea. Good. But it, like we it. adapted it to barbecue. <laughs> Jasper. <laughs> very cool. Very, very cool. Denny, uh, Denny, Artie, I see we're c- coming up on time. Uh, Denny, 
please uh, let us know where they, people can get your, your rubs and, and sauces and uh, where they can get them, your website, anything you want to promote, please do that. And Artie, I know you have you know, a good collection of books there and people should go on Amazon to go and, and take a look yeah, at, and, and get the books. Yeah. Yeah. So Danny they had to on Amazon. They go on Amazon for Denny Mike's too while they're uh, looking for Artie's books. Okay. <laughs> Not only that, but on Amazon, the reviews are excellent. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, they, I mean, they are. They, I mean, it's and and you know, it's a lot of times on Amazon, you're gonna sometimes reviews are not so yeah. kind, and yeah. it's yeah. like every review is just how incredible that uh, you know your rubs are, and and I tell you, they're they're not wrong. They are really really good. Amazon's Amazon's quite a game, and and, and you know that you brought the uh, up the fact that reviews are absolutely critical with Amazon. You go down a notch, and it's like forget about it. you know. So it's critical that you maintain a certain threshold of of quality and and approval and everything else. I mean, I'll tell you, man, it's. It's a it's a doggy dog game out there, and I am absolutely tickled pink to hear you say uh, you know and comment on those uh, reviews because they're they're gold, they're absolutely gold. And of course, hey, they're 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 hard earned too, no question about it. And, and Not trying know, to break my arm, patting myself on the back. That's all right. Well, <laughs> we 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 will pat you enough. That's you know, there's there's something else too. The names of your of your rubs too. They're not just common names. I mean. Right. Chick Magnet. I love that one. Yeah. <laughs> Turkey Lurky. Yeah. I mean, yeah. right. Yeah, you know, pit, right. Pixie Dust. I mean, you who thinks of the names? <laughs> Denny, the, is this you? Are you the name? Uh, we, so we, there was a bunch of us back when 20 some odd years ago, we're all smoking weed and drinking <laughs> beer and getting crazy, saying, well, what do you think we ought to call this one? These, I don't know, man, this stuff is magical. Let's call it Pixie Dust. Yeah. Yeah, he makes them <laughs> lots of rolls with uh, pixie dust and Duke's mayonnaise. And, oh, oh man. my God. It is heaven. And main Did you lobster. hear that, boys? A lobster roll. And you know yeah. lobster rolls. or lobster rolls, as we say. I say lobster roll. And uh, with a little pixie dust on. Now, it's like, wait a minute. And my mother used to make a lobster roll with, you know, always, my mother always had to do a little garnish a little contrast so she'd sprinkle a little bit of paprika on the top of her lobster roll just to trick it out well pixie dust is uh you know pretty well laden with paprika and uh, you know tucked a little bit of cayenne in there too just to you know smooth things out but it's a fabulous little just enough you don't want just a very light hand just a little touch and magical it really is that's why i called it pixie dust yeah they so go crazy can... over Tennessee of all places when Denny Mike makes those at the Jack. Yeah. <laughs> the word spreads and the lobster rolls disappear very quickly. Oh my God. That is so much fun. <laughs> that might be. And by the way, guys, I want to appreciate yeah. you sending that nice Christmas card. That was pretty thoughtful. I thought that was a nice touch. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> That's I, I think, listen, we the, the whole thing, baseball and barbecue, it's different. So we try to be different. We try to we, we appreciate our guests. We appreciate our listeners. And so I'm glad you liked it. And Artie, you would have gotten one, too, but we didn't have your address. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere no, in Kansas City. 
Arnie wouldn't do this, but I need to share that he did do some ribs for a guy. I can't remember. Kind of a yes. third, third-rate uh, ball player named uh, George Brett, was it? Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, man, we may have heard of him. <laughs> ribs for him for his 50th birthday. He came to our little house with a suitcase of barbecue or beer. And uh, I had a whole case of wines that Dave Eckert, who's a local wine expert, had recommended to to pair with the ribs. George's wife, Leslie, said, now, George, you're going to drink all that wine, too. And of course, he had 10 guests with him, and it was they had bought this dinner at an auction at the school where my wife taught second grade. So it was a fundraiser for the school. And some other people helped, you know, with the... You know, Mike Savage made the beans and somebody made the sauce, the uh, salad and dessert, all that. They had a ball. I mean, we were just the servants and George, I actually thought he he wanted to see how I cooked the ribs. So he said, show me your cooker. And so we went out to the backyard and I showed him. I think he really just wanted to chew some tobacco. (laughs) 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 About it said, you know, anytime you want to cook ribs for me, I, I'd love it. Yeah. Well, anyway, is it? Nice There's story. a little baseball for you guys. Yeah, yeah, okay. There you go. <laughs> See? And, and you mentioned George Brett. I'm telling you, Jeff's eyes just like went wide. Like, <laughs> did he just say George Brett? <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's a. Uh, we're trying. To, we're trying to get him on the show. That's uh, one of our uh, white whales that we're trying to get. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell him, tell him I said he needs to be on. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got Not it. That that you got one. it. Tell him Gretchen, my wife, said he should be on because he adored her as uh, as teacher of his sons. Yeah. Guys, we really appreciate you coming on to the, the show. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. pleasure talking to you, meeting you, and oh uh, yeah. And of we course. really like to invite you back on uh on one of these days. Yeah. Yes, Love to absolutely. do it again. You know how they say time flies when you're having fun. Oh, yeah. It it really does. And this was this this is why we do this. This was a joy. Again, we appreciate both of you. We respect both of you. And we're thrilled that you guys joined us on Baseball and Barbecue. We just thank you. Good to be with you. Thank you very much. Was I right? Was I right? That was conversation at its best really just great time with them jeff anybody uh, out there wants to send artie a dozen bagels <laughs> you should do so just a lot of fun and and actually it's funny i just used last night we used uh, one of denny mike's rubs oh it was uh for pork i can't remember no, uh, wine time yeah we used that and it was really good I know. So, uh, Did I tell you? Yeah. I told you. Yeah. No, you're right. We definitely like to uh, support uh, some of our guests and go to DennyMikes.com for his rubs and also go to BaseballBBQ.com for their outstanding grilling tools and accessories. Of course, this fifth and cherry for the beautiful cutting boards. And then, of course, the Pandemic Baseball Book Club to support the authors, many of whom have appeared on the show. Speaking of BaseballBBQ.com, 
they're going to be coming on with a uh, with a su- surprise or an unveiling of some sort. Special announcement they will be uh, making, and you and I don't have any clue what no it's going clue. to be. No clue. So looking looking forward to that. That's you just pulled back the curtain, didn't you? Yes, I did. And you know what I'm looking <laughs> forward to? I'm looking forward to this interview with Perry Barber. Let's go. Perry Barber has been a professional umpire since 1981, umpiring more than 6,300 games to date. She has umpired at all levels of the game, including Major League Baseball spring training. Her umpiring has taken her around the world to places such as Japan, Guam, Hong Kong, and the Caribbean. In addition to her own umpiring, Barbara has been a tireless advocate for giving other women opportunities to play and umpire. Perry hires female, other female umpires for the tournaments that she has been involved in, such as Baseball for All and the Red Sox Women's Fantasy Baseball Camp. Perry also conducts umpire clinics, speaking about umpiring and women's baseball, and serves as a board member of the, all, of the International Women's Baseball Center and an advisor for Baseball for All. Personally, I got to know Perry during Zoom calls on Sabre events and in New York Giants Preservation Society, where she is an active member. Welcome to Baseball and Barbecue, Perry Barber. Welcome, Perry. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Lennon. Delighted to be here. We're delighted to have you. Yes. Perry, you've been involved in baseball. What was the passion that started you on your road to baseball? I was a Jeopardy champion at the young age of 19. Mm. And I was actually one of the youngest champions they'd ever had at that point. It was 1972, and the show had been on the air for nine years at that point, I think. And they did not have a teen tournament or a college tournament, anything like that. I was just pitted against two adults and I beat them. And so I quickly gained a reputation among my friends as this, you know, brilliant trivia expert, which wasn't really true. uh, Because when I went back and defended my championship, I went down in flames. (laughs) (laughs) So I won on Jeopardy, but I lost on Jeopardy. And, you know, that tends to keep one humble. But anyway, so people were constantly challenging me to trivia, you know, thinking that if they beat me, they could go tell their friends, oh, I beat a Jeopardy champion. So I had a friend named Barry Bell, who I had met when I was the opening act for Bruce Springsteen in 1975. And Barry was his, he wasn't his agent yet at that point, but he did become his agent several years later. He he was working for the agency that was Bruce's agency at that time. So anyway, I got to be friends with him and his sister. And Barry was a, he was constantly challenging me to rock and roll trivia. What was the B side of, you know, Jay and the Americans, blah, blah, blah. And I was okay with that. But when he got to baseball, I was completely helpless and ignorant. And I just got annoyed with myself and decided to go to a bookstore and pick out three books about baseball and start educating myself. And my sole impetus was to beat my friend at baseball trivia. But as soon as I started reading about it, I just fell completely, madly, head over heels in love. It was like, it was like falling in love, really, at first sight. And I had had no interest in baseball up until that point in my life. And I was, this was 1976, so I was 
25 years old, actually 77. That was when, um, so I was 24, 20, (laughs) how old am I? I was, uh, (laughs) I was 26. And anyway, so I, that's all I did for the next year was just read, read, read everything I could get my hands on about baseball. And then I decided, well, I'm a New Yorker like you, (laughs) Jeff. And I told my boyfriend at the time who, then spurned me because he could see which way my life was going and that he was not, you know, my first priority at that point. I said, I have to decide, am I a Mets or Yankees? So I went to see, he took me to see the Yankees, 1978. And they were, you know, they coming off of a couple of World Series, Reggie Jackson, all those great players, Greg Nettles. And I just sat there completely unmoved. And then he took me to see the Mets. And in, in the late 70s, the Mets were individually very talented. They had Doug Flynn, Frank Tavares, some pretty good picture, pitchers. John Stearns, you know, individually, they were really good. But just as a team, they never gelled. But yet there was something very endearingly inept about them to me. And I just kind of adopted them and uh, became a National League fan. I think because I, I, the way I fell in love with baseball was by reading about old time baseball. The 1905 Giants are my all time favorite team, Christy Mathewson. And so that was my introduction to baseball, kind of through the back door, not the usual path to baseball fandom. <clears throat> Definitely. But um, for me, it was the perfect preparation, I, I think, for what was to come, which was umpiring, you know, taking my fandom to the nth degree, kind of. And I was lucky enough that my mother, Jacqueline, was the one who recognized in me something that I don't think I ever would have recognized in myself if she hadn't done it for me. And she suggested to me that I start umpiring Little League in 1981 out in California, where she was living at the time. And I looked at her like she was out of her mind. I'm like, why would I want to do that? The more I thought about it over the next few days, the more it seemed to make sense because I had so recently felt fallen in love with baseball. And it, it was about a year and a half earlier. And during that time, I had uh, I, I was a musician, a, a traveling troubadour. So I was I wandered all over the country, took buses and trains and, and rented cars and did this thing where I would call up a company and say, I need to go to California. And they'd give me a car and a tank of gas and I just have to deliver the car and I'd have the use of it. So, and and that was because I grew up in New York and I didn't know how to drive and I didn't learn how to drive until I started umpiring in 1981. And my my mother finally got sick of chauffeuring me around and gave me driving lessons. So I, I learned how to drive so I could drive myself to my games. But my mother actually drove me to my first little league game when I was 27 years old. <laughs> and and she's that thing. Yeah. What? No, I was going to say most people play uh, go to little league a lot younger than that. Though. Yeah. Well, I, I had no interest in baseball. It just was not on my radar when I was growing up. My my twin sister and I grew up in New York City and we I guess led a pretty privileged life. We went to a private school. We were not geared for athletics and certainly wasn't encouraged to, you know, 
do spectator sports at that time. So I, I just was not interested in it. I didn't dislike it, but I was just ambivalent. And then it turns out when I fell in love with it, that my mother was a huge fan. And so I would find myself out in California at loose ends between gigs. And we would literally go every night to see either the Dodgers or the Angels because she lived in Palm Springs, which was kind of equidistant from both of them. And when she suggested to me that I start umpiring, it was just a few weeks before the strike of 1981 when the major leaguers went on strike for half the summer. Anyway, June, July, part of August. Mm -hmm. And the thought of not being able to go to a baseball game with my mother was devastating to me. And so when she suggested that I start umpiring Little League out there, and like I said, I, I thought she was out of her mind, but I thought about it and it just made sense. And it had nothing to do with, you know, being a woman or being a feminist or burning my bra or anything like that. It was just a way to have a physical connection to something that I was just completely enraptured by at that point. And so I called up this little league. They placed an ad in the local paper and I amplified my credentials, shall we say. (laughs) (laughs) And for some reason, he bought it. I I think they were just desperate for umpires, you know, the way little leagues are. And I showed up at the office a few days later, and the the assigner handed me a mask, pair of shin guards, and one of those old balloon-style protectors and said, here you go. And that was literally my training and my preparation for little league baseball. And I very quickly found out that it wasn't enough. (laughs) I needed a lot more because my first game was so horrendous. Uh, There were letters in the local paper the next day, people pleading, don't let that woman umpire come back, please. She let a, you know, 10, 10 year old game go on for three hours. And, and all of it was true. When I was reading the letters in the paper the next day, I didn't take offense I was just thinking to myself, you know, they're absolutely right. I I wanted to do a good job, but I just had no idea how demanding umpiring can be, even at the little league level. You have to know what you're doing. And it's not just a matter of, you know, ball strike and being accurate on making your calls. It's uh, the way you carry yourself and the way you interact with all of the different people on the ball field, in the dugouts. And it was just a very foreign experience to me because I had grown up in New York and been petted and praised and, you know, told I was adorable and charming my whole life. And all of a sudden, here were people in my face with their veins bulging out of their necks, you know, spittle flying around saying, you know, go home. You don't belong here. (laughs) And you know what? It was it was really interesting because at that point, believe it or not, I was shy and retiring, kind of like Shirley. Um, I was not the kind of person that would put myself out there, shall we say. I preferred to bask and let my twin sister get the the lights. And I I just followed along with her. But this was something very new for me. And it, it didn't make me feel bad when those people were yelling at me and telling me I was terrible. And why was I out there? And I was ruining everything. It made me feel curious, not just about learning how not to be terrible, but about human nature in general, and how to navigate those types of 
interactions and confrontations so that they turn out the way I want them to instead of the way the person who's yelling at me wants it to. And that's one of those what I call invisible skills of umpiring that are very, very important and that a lot of people don't really think about when they think about an umpire's competence or proficiency. But it's a very important aspect of umpiring that's always intrigued me and uh, stimulated me and still does 42 years later. (laughs) And and Perry, Jeff, I know has a lot of questions about umpiring, but you, from the moment you started, you said some things that we cannot overlook. Number one, which I think here, I'm going to, I'm going to combine the two. I'm going to give you the answer. And as the true 19-year-old Jeopardy champion that you were, you need to give me the question, all right? Uh-oh. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, Billy Joel, Hall and Oates. Who are some of the more celebrated music acts for which I have been the opening act? Wow, that is something. Yes, that is <laughs> wow. a wreck. Hey, you forgot Kinky Friedman and the Texas Jew Boys. Oh, there you oh, go. Kinky Friedman, Kinky right. Friedman. I know Kinky <laughs> Friedman, right? They ain't make, well, I won't sing that song, but... <laughs> Um, that's that's very impressive, Perry. I I didn't know that about you. That's that's fantastic. Exactly. So we've got Jeopardy. We've got singer songwriter Perry Barber. You have you always loved game shows? Is it just Jeopardy? What is it? And and a little birdie told me that maybe you've been on Jeopardy more than once. Take it away, Perry. I've always soaked up knowledge like a sponge. And I, I have, I don't, I wouldn't say a photographic memory, but a, a semi-eidetic memory, meaning I just absorb, you know, lots of facts and store them away and can spew them back out. Oh, and by the way, Amy Schneider got beat on Jeopardy tonight. Her forty-one ga- her forty-game streak is over. And wow, what a run she had, man! I'm, that was spectacular impressive. watching her. Impressive, yeah, very impressive. And I wanted to thank both of you for accommodating my Jeopardy Jones because. <laughs> I, I still watch it every night, and and anybody who knows me knows not to call me between seven and seven thirty when I'm in New York, or seven thirty and eight o'clock when I'm down here in Florida, because that's well, when Jeopardy is on. So well, stay tuned because later on in this interview we have a little Jeopardy related surprise Uh-oh. that Jeff doesn't even know about. Oh, <laughs> gonna right. put me hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it it's just that I've always just loved reading and I was a good student in school. I've just always loved learning, I guess is the best way to say it. And so Perry, I, what did you at age 19? How much money did you win the first time you won Jeopardy? I won the grand total of $660, which in in today's Jeopardy money would be equivalent to $6,600 because back then it was 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. It wasn't a thousand, so on. And at 19 years old, that was a fortune to me. That money kept me in beer and Skittles for a year. I sublet an apartment on the Upper East Side. (laughs) And that combined with the Bon Ami cleanser and, and the case of rice man, I didn't have to buy food or cleaning supplies for a year. It was great. 
it was it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And yeah, so I've I've always loved learning. And when Jeopardy came on the air in 1963, my twin sister and I played sick so we could stay home from school because at that time it was on at noon. I think on Channel Four, if I if I recall correctly, and I've just and I've been on I think six quiz shows in my lifetime, and I just took the test for the chase. So because I'm not allowed to go back on Jeopardy, at least not right now. They I was I thought that I would be able to once Alex Trebek was no longer the host, but anybody that was on during his tenure as host is not permitted to go back on. See, I thought I thought you were going to say that. See, that was. A little disappointing because you said, because I'm not allowed to go back on Jeopardy. <laughs> so, of course, we're thinking, all right, what did she do? <laughs> Harry, what did you do? And then I was a bad girl. <laughs> well, actually, there's a funny story. I mean, and I guess I can tell it now, but the, the first my first show was the very last show taped that week. And I had come home from college and I was sick. And when they called me, they and they taped they taped the show at Rockefeller Center back then, which was I could have walked there from where I was living with my family on the Upper East Side. And they called me and they said, "Can you come in and tape on such and such a day?" And I said, "Well, I'm sick. Can I come in next week?" And they said, "Well, no, but if you're sick, we can schedule you for you know 19." 19- 40 in 1989. And, you know, this is 1972. And I said, okay, I'll come in. So I went in and I was not feeling good at all. I was sick, coughing, hacking, you know, and I went into the bathroom and had a little um, pick me up, shall we say, while I was in there. <laughs> Being a musician, I had a lot of friends. Nowadays, it would be impossible because uh, they you can't go to the bathroom on a quiz show without somebody going with you. They are that close to the vest about making sure there's no cheating or scandal going on. But somehow I managed to use the bathroom by myself and I had a little joint with me and I just polished it off. And I'm not going to say I was high when I when I won on Jeopardy, but I I had admittedly, you know, smoked a little bit. And that was the game that I won. And when I went back to defend my championship the following Wednesday, which was the next day of taping, I was up against, uh, I, I can't even remember, but I went down in flames. So I won once, lost once. But then in 1988, I was allowed to go back on. I tried out again because Art Fleming was not the host and they retooled the show and it came back under a different production company. So they allowed people that had been on the original Jeopardy to go on the Alex Trebek version. And I went back on in 1988. And it was when the Mets were playing the Dodgers in the playoffs that year. Mm-hmm. And David Cohn opened his big fat mouth and said they were, and they had the thing posted in the Dodgers dugout. And I was at that game and I was so upset. And of course they lost and it was all I could think about. And the next day was the taping and it just, I was all out of sorts. And they made you uh, lose Jeopardy. Max, yeah. come on. And, and maybe you didn't do, you maybe you didn't do a little bit of the, you know what you should have no, done. No, no, no. Yeah. I was straight as an arrow back yeah, then. Well, maybe and that's the problem. The, the problem was that I was up against a guy who was going for his fifth win uh, and they had, 
completely revamped the buzzer system. You know, you see people doing this with their mm-hmm. buzzers. Yep. That's because they do what's called locking themselves out. When you're watching at home, you can't see it. But on the screen, when you're in the studio, the, a, a light goes ar- around the whole screen. And that presumably happens at the instant that the host stops reading the question, finishes reading it. But in reality, it, it's dependent upon a human being who's pushing the button at the instant that the host stops speaking. And it, it, the guy going for his fifth win had that timing down to a science. And I started doing, you know, this thing that you see people doing, because if you ring in too early, you lock yourself out. You're not permitted to ring in again for a quarter of a second, which in Jeopardy time is an eternity. And it's the hardest impulse to suppress this doing this thing. People just are incapable of waiting even half a second. It's so funny. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I see it all the time. Like, you have to, you have to go against your instincts, and it's funny. Uh, umpiring is a lot like that in some ways too. You have to learn to go against your instincts in order to uh, do the right thing. So. so, so let's let's talk about uh, umpiring. You went to the what the ha- Harry Wendelstedt School of umpiring. Yes, this Harry is uh, obviously a- after your little league experience, and so, the very next January. Okay, so can you tell us about that experience and? And you went a couple of times, actually, right? I went five times. I think huh? I might hold a record or something. <laughs> me and me and Phil Cuzzy, who was my classmate the first four times I went through 82, 83, 84, 85. And Phil was my classmate. And he got a job finally that last year. And I went back to doing high school and college ball around New York. But it was just a great experience going to umpire school. In five weeks, I would say it's worth at least two or three years of umpiring experience. And they teach you the right way to do things. And I was very lucky that right at the beginning that I got that training so that I didn't become inculcated with a lot of bad habits right from the start, which unfortunately a lot of umpires do because they don't get the training that they need right at the beginning. And by the time they do get some, they have to break a lot of bad habits. Like former ball players that ump- that become umpires, they do this thing we call chasing the baseball. And as an umpire, you want to do the opposite. You don't want to go where the baseball is. You want to go where it isn't so that you get a good angle on the play. And that's usually 90 degrees away from it, things like that. So what was your question? I, I, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I tend to wax poetic and, and go on. So you explain you like me. Your, <laughs> your experiences at, at the, the Wendelstedt School. You know, yeah. You're, you're, yeah. So yes. you I went. I went those four years, and I the first two years I was not thinking I was going to get a job, but my last two years I thought I might have a shot. But there was one woman working in professional baseball back then, Pam Postema, and she had just been promoted to AAA. And one was all baseball could handle back then, you know, because women are such a bother. And um, it was just not in the cards for me. But I actually am very thankful that I did not get a job in professional baseball out of umpire school, because the 42 years that I've spent umpiring have just been absolutely a blast. And I don't regret one minute of it. And I've traveled all over the world and just met some amazing people and people like you. And because I was friends with some people at the Mets who hired me to umpire spring training games. And 
Jeff, you worked for the Mets with I my did. good friend, Dennis D'Agostino. That's right. He uh, was the assistant uh, <laughs> PR director when I was an oh, intern yes. there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you worked with Jay Horowitz, the Jay Horowitz. celebrated Jay Horowitz. Yes. Yep. And, uh, and then he remembered Jeff. And, exactly. And, and well, I saw, actually, I saw Jay Horowitz a couple of months ago at a, uh, at a restaurant here. And Arthur Richmond, who you also knew, Oh, he was a very, I mean, one of the nicest men I ever met when I was uh, my time at the Mets. Yes. Jeffy, do you need any money? (laughs) 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 Want to get a hot toddy? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for mentioning Arthur. He was the one who really put his balls on the line for me. He hired me to umpire Mets spring training games in 1985. Mm-hmm. I was fresh out of my fourth time through umpire school, and he, I had taken a bus in the middle of the night to go over to St. Petersburg to audition for the guy that was running the Mets fantasy camp. It was a guy named Norman Amster, and he and Buddy Harrelson. And fantasy camps were, I think, fairly new at that point. So I, I took the bus over there, and I worked a couple of games, and the next year, they I was assigning four fantasy camps and had a, a stable of 100 umpires to send out to games down here in Florida. It was pretty great. And Buddy Harrelson was always so good to me. And he got me my job in the Atlantic League mm-hmm. when the Atlantic League started. And uh, I'll never forget it. He came running out on a play at first base. He was managing the Long Island Ducks the first year. And I, I called one of his runners out at first base and he came barreling towards me and he goes, Perry, what are you doing? You don't belong in this league. And I looked at him and I said, but buddy, you hired me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buddy Harrelson, he, he was a sweetheart and sorry that he is not doing well. Yeah, yeah. we all Harrison. are. Yeah. <laughs> You were actually the supervisor umpire for the Atlantic League, weren't you? I was, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I finagled my way into that position because several of the umpires that were going to work for the league, I knew from working down here in Florida, and they said, why don't you work with us? And I said, they're not going to hire a woman. And they said, but, you know, but it turns out that the guy who was the president of the league, Joe Klein, was just a prince among men. He had been the youngest general manager, one of the youngest, when he became general manager of the Texas Rangers, and then he was the general manager of the Detroit Tigers. And he and a guy named Frank Bolton got together and dreamed up this league. And nobody knew what it was going to be like or what was going to happen at that point when it started in May of 1998. But I I wound up writing a letter to Joe Klein and convincing him to hire me on the basis of my ability to herd cats, shall we say. Mm -hmm. I I said, I'll I'll take care of all the problems with the umpires. You don't want to think about that, you know, that they need water during a game or that they destroy their rooms when they're drunk at the hotel. You know, I'll take care of all of that. And so he hired me. and, And with that title came the privilege of assigning myself to whatever games I wanted to. I was what we had a couple of uh, roving umpires. There were only two crews that were complete. The other two were missing an umpire. So that I, and that was a lot of fun for me because I could hire guys that I had umpired with doing college ball. And so it was really a lot of fun. I had a great time for those four years 
working in the Atlanta. And I am so glad that I'm not working there now, or at least until this year, because they've been using the robot technology for the last couple of years. This year, they stopped using it, or if they right. will, but presumably, because they're going to AAA now, which um, very curious how that's going to work out. But uh, I talk to those umpires all the time and ask them, you know, what, how is it working with the technology? And so many complaints. And I've read uh, there was an article by Kevin Kernan a couple of weeks right. ago where he said he talked to a lot of players and it's routine for the robot to miss 25, 30 pitches. And if that's true, I mean, what's the point? I could get back there and work 20, <laughs> miss 25, 30 pitches, you know, and uh, there's not a major league umpire that misses that many oh, in one game. Not. Yeah. I mean, you, you, so. But you, you would see that people would think because they have that box on the screen that they miss it, but that box is stationary and the players aren't. It, Exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. For height up and down, it, it changes from batter to batter. Exactly. And it, it doesn't actually change from one at bat to another at bat, although Pete Rose and Rod Carew might want you to think it does. But the way umpires judge the up and down strike zone is when the batter is in what's called his natural batting stance, which is when he's actually swinging and hitting the ball, not when he's crouched over trying to shrink a strike zone. So you call ball, ball, ball. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> so I actually almost got into an altercation with Pete Rose at Katz's Deli. Uh, not Katz's, the one that was on 7th Avenue that closed a few years ago. The Carnegie. Carnegie, Carnegie Deli. Deli. Yeah. He fought over so he, a pastrami sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily, tell us what happened. Yeah. Well, he was just there complaining about the umpire that had worked the game that night. The Phillies were in town. And I can't remember. I, I probably was there with, I don't know, Eddie Montague or Dutch Rennert or one of those umpires, Lee Wire. I was out good friends with all of them. And he just started, you know, launching on one of the umpires that I knew. And I, it was Randy, Randy Marsh. That was who had been my instructor at umpire school. And I defended him. And Pete Rose was a bit taken aback, shall we say, this, you know, little blonde girl who looked like butter wouldn't melt in her mouth, suddenly talking about umpiring and, you know, defending a, an umpire when he was very, very critical. So, the, yeah, that was an interesting experience. But. Wow, that's karma. Yeah. <laughs> look, at, look at what happened to Pete Rose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all because of me. Uh, yeah, wow. I, I, I put the I put the evil eye on him. <laughs> I tell you, karma's up. You know what? <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Perry, when you're on pie, uh, obviously when you're on pie, what's the hardest call to make? The hardest call to make? When to suspend a game because of rain? That's because ah. you're going to take shit no matter what you decide. <laughs> and my first concern always is safety. And if I see somebody slipping or if I think a condition is unsafe, I will just stop it right there. And I don't care who says what to me. And I, I remember when I was working up at Harbor Yard in Connecticut in the Atlantic League one night and the way I, I, could tell when it was time to call a game was when the fog descended down a smokestack visible from way, way out in right field. And when the fog got to a certain ring around the smokestack, that was time to suspend the game. So I let it go 
and then there's a fly ball and the center fielder is going, oh. he had no idea where the ball was and it dropped to the ground about, you know, 20 feet in front of him. And I just went, okay, time, that's it, let's go. And oh, the general manager came out and got down on it. I think people thought he was proposing to me, but he was begging me, Perry, just one more out, just one more out. And I'm like, I can't. I mean, everybody saw the guy had no clue where the ball, he needed one more out to make it a complete game because otherwise they would have had to give money back or, you know, refund the tickets or whatever, but they had to honor the tickets. Uh, so he was very upset with me, but you know, I, I had my integrity and I just couldn't do it. And it was funny, you know, today I'm, I'm doing a fantasy camp with the Detroit Tigers and Frank Tanana came out and good naturedly, I, I might add, he was yelling at me, Perry, why wasn't that an infield fly? Because the ball was popped up, bases loaded, yeah, bases loaded. And, you know, these guys are 60, 70 years old. They are not ready to catch a pop-up with ordinary effort, <laughs> which is one of the criteria of an infield fly. As a matter of fact, he's like, you know, running as fast as a 70-year-old can run trying to catch it. So I didn't call infield fly, and I explained that to him. And he goes, come on, Perry, it's fantasy camp. And, you know, I, I have to admit, he had a point. <laughs> that ordinary effort for a 70-year-old ball player is not the same thing as for a New York Met. Harry, you know? right. <laughs> two-time guest, Bobby Valentine, two times on this show, I, I'm proud to say, has a story he tells often about the, the infamous game, his mustache and the dugout game. <laughs> so he got kicked out of the game because he said to the umpire, can I get kicked out for what I'm thinking? The umpire said no. So he told him what he was thinking. Right, yeah. But I want to know. <laughs> what? I, yeah, that is a good story. It's, it's even better when Bobby tells it. But how much slack would you, well, you don't know what he said, but would you have kicked Bobby V out? And how much slack will you give before you eject someone? For me, it's not so much a matter of giving slack. It's a matter of me recognizing what their motivation for coming out and doing it is. And if I have a suspicion that they want to get tossed so they can go and sit in the air-conditioned clubhouse while I'm out there sweating my brains out in 95-degree heat, I'm not going to throw him out. And I'll, I'll just look at him. I say, you can call me whatever you want. You're staying out here and suffering with me. But there are obviously certain circumstances or exchanges that warrant ejection. And I probably have a longer fuse than, than a lot of umpires I work with because I recognized early on that if I rack up a record of, you know, 35 ejections every, every year or every season, that's not going to reflect well on my ability to handle myself or to manage a ball game. And that's what umpires basically do. I think of us as conductors and everything flows from us to the pitcher, to the catcher, and everything radiates from that little nexus right there. And we actually can make a very profound difference in the flow of a game, the pace of play. And that's another one of those invisible aspects of umpiring that's so important for umpires to be able to to do well um, so that who wants to sit there and be bored like 
you know, ball, 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 nobody catches a ball, nobody can hit the ball, you know, you want to keep things moving. And there are certain tricks to doing that. And they make a very noticeable difference in the duration of a game and and the the pace of it, you know, because anything can happen. And for me, the best kind of ball game is when I am able to navigate the game over all of the little blips and bumps that happen so that they don't escalate into a situation that results in an ejection or a, you know, a melee where somebody might get hurt. That's the last thing any any umpire ever wants to see. So that's my goal. Is, and most umpires actually don't go looking to eject ballplayers. We give them every chance to stay in the game because you know why? When we throw them out, we have to write a report. And yeah. I don't like paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> it's homework. Yeah. I'm over that. <laughs> That's news. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Harry, you're, you're a big advocate for women in baseball. I know Len and I believe that baseball is for everybody. Thank you. Yes, it absolutely. Is. I know there are women referees in basketball. There's referees in, in, eight. in football. Eight. I know Two. In, in football. <laughs> I knew there was a couple in football. I don't see any in, in the major leagues. Why well, is that? that? What 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 could possibly be the reason? Well, number one, obviously, is the paucity of female candidates. Uh, baseball has never encouraged women to go to umpire school. It's it's always been a very male dominated thing to do to go to umpire school and get a job. And umpiring as a profession or even an avocation has very seldom been presented to women here in the United States as an activity that we will eventually be good at and enjoy. And the fact that my mother suggested to me is just totally miraculous to me. In 1981, I mean, what mother would suggest to her adult daughter, you should try umpiring? And I bless the day that she did that for me because my life would be so different now. And that's kind of my mission now. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk about that, to change that perception of umpiring as a job of drudgery and just getting yelled at and humiliated. Those parts of it are so fleeting. And I'm not going to say they're inconsequential because you learn a lot from them, and that's of great consequence. But overall, relative to everything else that happens and, and goes on and, and is perceived and seen and done, it's just you know, a blip on the radar, and it's done. And the rest of it is so interesting and just, I don't know. It's, you know, I call baseball my bad boyfriend, but when I'm out there umpiring, he's my good boyfriend because even if I'm not at the top of my game and I, you know, I miss a couple of calls or a few pitches or something, it's always a good thing for me to remind myself, okay, I'm not a robot. <laughs> I'm human. I can make a mistake and that doesn't make me a bad person. Even if somebody is trying to convince me that I am <laughs> right mm -hmm. here in my face. But it, it's been just a, a very a wonderful growth way to grow as a person and, and a human being to understand certain things about myself because of what happens on the baseball field and be able to take what I've learned out there to my relationships and my interactions with my friends in my daily life. 
so that now everybody does what I does what I want them to all the time, unquestioningly. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's great. Will we see uh, a professional woman umpire in the major leagues in the foreseeable future? I'm so glad you asked, because up until yesterday, I would have said it would be at least five years. There are two women in the low minors. One of them just got promoted to double A. The other one is in high A. And the one that's in double A, I think this will be her either her fifth or sixth season. And if you know anything about the trajectory of a minor league umpire's career, that's fairly unusual. At this point, for the last 10, 20 years, it's been two years at one level. If you don't get promoted, you're given your pink slip. They call it being released, but really it's just being fired. So that's the way most umpires' careers progress if they're going to be promoted to the major leagues. Well, Jen, Jen and Emma, who are the two women, have been seasoned slowly, I guess, you know, because women are, you know, we, we need to be get into the mood. Or So they've been very slow about promoting them. But I think somebody is fine. I, I have my spies and I get, you know, reports and little things told in my ear. And I think it may happen a lot sooner than I thought as recently as just a couple of days ago, so that we won't have to wait five years for them to both do double A and then triple A, and then spend a whole lot of time as what they call vacation umpires. Mm -hmm. the, the umpires that called up from triple A to replace the umpires that go on vacation during the summertime. So I, I am just completely almost ecstatic and numb with joy at, at the realization that this may actually be a thing <laughs> in the next couple of years. And I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that they stay healthy. That's the important thing because I have every confidence that they will be ready on day one because I know them both and they are both so solid and so excellent right now. And I, you know, when I do these podcasts and Zooms and I tell people, hey, I know 15 women that could do the job right now. And it's been a stain on minor league baseball and the umpiring schools, not so much major league baseball, because they don't really have any say at, at an umpire's career at that level until they get to AAA, which is when they become under contract to major league baseball. But it's the, the two umpire schools and they're the only two. That was the only way to get a job is to go to umpire school place high enough in the class. And the classes are usually 150 to 200 candidates. So the odds are not good. They only take 10 to 15 every year. And then they winnow that number down to even a smaller number to put into the very, very low levels of minor league baseball. So it, it's a long, hard slog for any umpire that has dreams of becoming a major league umpire. But I think baseball is finally coming to the realization that these women are are ready and that there's no reason to keep them down there any longer, especially because of, you know, everything else. And, you know, now we're going to get a black woman on the Supreme Court. And, you know, as you pointed out, every other major sport has had women referees and umpires. But baseball traditionally has had to be dragged kicking and screaming into the next decade, the next century. It is not a progressive sport. You know, it, it took 
12 years after Jackie Robinson broke the color line for the last team to hire a black ball player, the Mm -hmm. Boston Red Sox in 1959. And I, I just think a lot of the resistance is evaporating. But what has to happen now is proactivity. Uh, the major league supervisors have just been sort of sitting around. Now they're not standing in the way and actively obstructing women's entry into umpiring, but they're not really doing anything. They're just kind of waiting for the woman to show up all magically ready to go. And that is not how it happens. You have no, to you know, go not. through a lot. Yeah. As, yeah. as, as a follow-up though, is it because is one of the reasons for the major leagues is because they they only have what seventy eight umpires and they have to retire. I mean, they, they don't really fire anybody unless it's really negligence. Right. It's like it's, it's hard it, to it, get court. fired, right? Yeah. So it, it they have to wait. I, for somebody, I actually some think it's closer to ninety nine there because of okay. the um, the AAA umpires that are included okay. on the roster. So I think it's closer to a hundred at this point. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it's a very closed circuit. And mm-hmm. it has not been open to women, shall we say. But I think finally, you know, things are changing. And it's only taken 40 years since I started and, you know, started making a stink about it. But well, we, we're glad you happened. made us think about it because it, it, it's long overdue. I mean, there's no, oh, yeah. absolutely no reason. I'm, I'm a real stinker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when think about it, baseball really is just slow moving. I mean, even now with the lockout, and then they don't talk and then they have a, pre, a you know one group yes. presents and the other and it's just like come on it moves it done at a glacial Move pace <laughs> yeah, they really yeah. they really do yeah um, and so, they complain about it on the field when uh, the baseball moves at a glacial pace but off the field you know all of the goings on that those move even slower so what can you do except you know try to kick some tukas every once in a while Len, before you you get to your uh, surprise, I was going to say, are you guys ready? I just have one. I just have one. I just have one thing I want to say. Perry Barber, Rachel Robinson, Effa Manley and Claire Smith have been the winners of the Darcy Seymour Mills Lifetime Achievement Award for Women in Baseball presented by Sabre. And Perry was the very first winner. And we congratulate you. Congratulations, uh, Perry. Well deserved. I, I don't know when the next one. Oh, next one's going to be announced in May, May thirty first, twenty twenty two. So whoever the nominees are, they're, I'm sure they're well deserved. And well, I just want to congratulate Perry for being the. I am in very good company with those yes, women. Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning Dorothy. She was alive when I was awarded the first. We call it the Dorothy, the the actual physical award. And I was at the Nine Conference in Arizona. And she was sitting right behind me when it was announced that I had won that award. And oh my gosh, to be able to turn around and see her sitting there looking at me with this look of absolute love and adoration and approval. I just, oh my gosh, it was such an, uh, an amazing experience because Dorothy, Dorothy Seymour Mills was just the most amazing, wonderful, brilliant, elegant woman I could ever hope to meet. And the fact that she labored in the shadow of her husband, Seymour, who took credit for all the three books that they wrote that basically created the saber and, you know, the baseball research industry. They were the the foundation of that. And her husband refused to give her credit when really Mm -hmm. she did a lot of the work. And so to see her behind me when that 
was announced was just a wonderful moment. Yeah, and thank right. you for mentioning it. I might also mention you forgot that I was recently inducted into the New York State Baseball Hall of Fame. Oh, so. Jeff. <laughs> Jeff, what? Come on. All right, Perry, I, I, along, you, along you want to be my new co-host. Wilson co-hosts. and the aforementioned <laughs> Jay Horowitz. You know, I, I do think I mentioned it on, on one of those the <laughs> giant preservation society meetings. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you're off the hook. Okay. <laughs> All right. Len, go ahead. All right. We have such a budget and this has been barely tested. So we're going to try and do this a little game because Perry, we know how much you enjoy this. Give this a shot. Okay. And Jeff, you have editing ability just in case. So <laughs> there we okay. go. <laughs> you're giving me some wiggle room here. Thank you. Len. <laughs> Do you know that music actually has a title? That song has a title. Merv and Griffin it, it, wrote it. But like he wrote the theme to Jeopardy. And the title of that particular tune is Think Music. Wow. But see, Perry, you didn't answer that in the form of a question, so I can't give you credit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't. I did. Well, what's the answer? You didn't give me the answer. <laughs> we you know, on. Jeopardy is the show that gives you the answer, which is really the question in the form of an answer. And you have to answer the answer, which is really the question in the form of an answer with a question, which is really the answer in the form of a question. So, um, Perry, uh, yeah, that. Maybe. <laughs> that that was a beautiful thing. And, and <laughs> all right, here we go. I like that. Maybe Perry should host this show. So <laughs> Perry and Jeff, we're going to play a little Jeopardy. All right. So, here we go. And this is going to be, we are baseball and barbecue. And, you know, Perry, I know you have such barbecue expertise. So we're going to do, no, this will all be baseball and <laughs> not barbecue. All right. So here we go. There are five columns. Of course, I should screen share with you guys, but I don't know how to do that. So we're not going to play the whole game. This could take you know forever. Here are your categories. World Series, famous nicknames, all-time leaders, famous home runs, and awards. So Perry, you are the guest. What would you like to start with? All-time leaders. Okay. We'll start you with all-time leaders for 200. I made that decision. That's a good place to start. All right. Pew, 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 pew. Daily Double. (laughs) Oh, wow. Already. Jeff, you are going to lose this game. Who is Nolan Ryan? Well, you just gave the question. You have to give the answer. Oh, yeah. And then I give the question, right? Boy, I'm really you screwed it up. <laughs> Boy, I can... Okay. Well, he is the all time strikeout. You just leader, say so. Nolan Ryan, and then I say, who pitched seven no hitters? <laughs> Boy, I am I am awful. Okay. <laughs> but that wasn't the. Okay, here we go. Yeah, that was <laughs> one, too. We would have had to go to the judges, but I think that would have been good. All right. So, Perry, we'll start you again. World okay. Series, famous nicknames, all time leaders, famous home runs, and awards. Famous nicknames. All right. Famous nicknames. Famous nicknames for 100, Perry. <laughs> Big Poppy. Who is the newly elected Hall of Famer, David Ortiz? Yes. You won. <laughs> you 100 points for Perry. Jeff, you are an accountant, so you. I hope you're <laughs> keeping score. <laughs> oh, actually, they even give. I even can keep score on this thing. This is very cool. So now, Jeff. What did you remember the categories? Uh, awards. Awards. Awards for 200? Sure. 
given to the player that leads their league in home runs. What is the Hank Aaron Award? All right. Perry, World Series, famous nicknames, all-time leaders, famous home runs, or awards? Famous home runs. Famous home runs. We're going to give you famous home runs for 300. Are you ready? I'm ready. He hit the farthest home run ever hit at Wrigley Field. Oh, my gosh. I will give you a hint. Am I allowed to? I'm. You know what? I make the rules on this game. This is Jeopardy with a little, with an asterisk, like some of the Hall of Famers eventually will go in <laughs> with. Anyway, he played for everyone's favorite team, the New York Mets. He had the longest home run at Wrigley Field. Wow. Daryl Strawberry? Well, you oh, would have to Who is Daryl Strawberry? And it would still be wrong. Okay. So, but that's okay. Jeff, you have the chance to steal. Who is Dave Kingman? That is correct. Oh, and for, for um, bonus, how far was the home run? 478 and a half feet. Wow. You are a half a foot off. No, it is 540 feet. Wow. Okay. Oh, that, that is a shot. That's well, over is, that's over Waverly over Avenue. The apartments. Over yeah. the apartments. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably in wow. someone's car. You know, I just want to mention that with all of the things that people say about Dave Kingman, and I know he sent something in the mail one time, but the first time I met him, I walked into a room and there were a bunch of players sitting around. As soon as he saw me, he got, he stood up and introduced himself to me. And I always appreciated that, that he was a real gentleman with me. Yep. Nice. Where where was that? Because you weren't an umpire at the time. Well, you weren't weren't a major league umpire, but... uh... No, I, I still am not. It was it was in the early 1980s. It, it was when he was playing with the Mets. So uh-huh. whenever that was one of the, he was with them for just a year or a couple of years. Not well, he's, he's with them two times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, it was probably his second time through. Okay. World Series, famous nicknames, all-time leaders, famous home runs or awards. Perry, we'll go back to you. World Series. All right. World Series. And for because 400. 400. Good. Because we're going to. We're going to wrap this up uh, soon, this game. Okay. Although it is a lot of fun, I have to say. I'm enjoying this. All right. (laughs) And we do this podcast for my enjoyment. This team won the Fall Classic three times in a row from 1972 to 1974. Perry, you know this one. Oh, who are the Oakland A's? That is correct. (laughs) Yes, I knew. And I'm glad I knew Jeff would steal that one if he got it. So, yeah. Okay. Jeff, World Series, famous nicknames, all-time leaders, famous home runs, and awards. Famous nicknames for a thousand or whatever it is. (laughs) Well, in this, it's 500, but but if it's a daily double. (laughs) All right. Wow. Ooh. Three fingers. Who is Mordecai Brown? Wow. Mordecai Centennial Brown. Ooh. ooh. (laughs) Well, that. We give Perry a bonus because she got the middle name. <laughs> that's how we, that's our guests are always going to win anyway. Yes. So. Okay. Last question. We go to Perry, although this is a lot of fun. World Series, famous nicknames, all time leaders, famous home runs, and awards. Perry, which one? Famous home runs. For 500? Sure, 500. And before we get to this, you know, you mentioned you've been on some podcasts and Zoom calls. Please tell me, have you ever been on a podcast or even a TV shows? Because I've seen you on 
you were on ESPN or something, right? I, I saw MLB now. MLB now. Okay, MLB now. Mm-hmm. Has anyone ever had you play Jeopardy? No. See, Jeff? What is no? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we are baseball and barbecue. He hit the walk-off homer that won his team the World Series in 1960. Who is Bill Mazeroski? And yes. you know, there were there are two very unusual things about that World Series. Number one, and I just learned this from Marty Appel, who I was on a Zoom with earlier today, is that there were no strikeouts in that wow. in that game in the seventh game. There were no strikeouts. Wow. And number two is that it's the only World Series in history for which the MVP was on the losing team, and that was Bobby Richardson of the mm-hmm. Yankees. So, yeah. yeah, that was an amazing World Series. Yeah, in that World Series, I, I think, and I, I wasn't born at the time, but I, I read that the Yankees scored more runs. I mean, the, the, the Yankees oh. win, Yankees win were all blowouts, where the Pirates win were very close. They clobbered games. them. Yeah. yeah, and that was why it was so unusual for right. the MVP to be on the losing, because they literally got clobbered. I think the score of the last game was 12 to 9 or something. I mean, you know, pretty high scoring game. Yeah. So. Oh, Perry, this yeah. has been Good a lot question. of fun. Good answers. <laughs> Perry, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It's been a wonderful talking to you. Best of luck to all you, everything. And let's hope one day we see women in more prominent positions in, in baseball. I know they're getting in, in, in the front office, which is, is a good thing. But let's see them on, on the field umpiring. And that, that'd, be, uh, that'd be real progress. Thank you so much, both of you, for your support and encouragement. It really means a lot. And I'm just so delighted to to be on your show with you. We're delighted to have you. And I just want to piggyback on what Jeff said, or just to ask you, Perry, you have been an absolute delight. Will you come back on the show at some point? No. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime. And I will. I <laughs> I have, you, have you ever been spurned on your show? <laughs> oh, I've been spurned a lot in regular life. That's why I do a show. <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> I will. I will uh, put Shirley and Maybell in touch with you, definitely, because I we would love think that. they have a lot of fun. So. We would. We would love that. We would love to. We we love baseball history. I, I mean, we like the current game, you know, and all, all that, of course. But there is nothing like baseball history. I mean, just now you're talking about Bill Mazeroski and you're talking about the game and you're talking about just the things about it. When we have these authors on and and we read about these players and the things you learn and the history and then the the connections. Uh, it, and like you said, you That's read a it. few books, you fell in love with the game. You You can't not love baseball. Baseball is the connective tissue that bonds all of us to one another. Uh, that's the way I feel about it. And so now the three of us are connected and nice little menage a trois we've got. Going <laughs> <in here. laughs> I like it. Yes. <laughs> uh, thank you, Perry. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Perry Barber. And thank you, Jeopardy contestant, Jeff. Jeff, you know what? You might want to uh, try out for Jeopardy. If, if the category is baseball. That, that's the only category, though, I can. <laughs> you guys were both very, very good.
But wasn't Terry a, a delight? I mean, she is just, like I said earlier, a pioneer in the field, and she's just great. I mean, I, I, I'm really glad that we got to know Barry Barber. Oh, what a sense of humor she has. <laughs> I, I love when I asked her if she'd come back on and she said no. <laughs> Although maybe she meant it. I don't know. No, she was, yeah, very, very enjoyable. Look forward to speaking to her again. I, I think there's nothing that she can't do or won't do or hasn't done. She really was terrific. Yes. Jeff, you you know what we promised. We made a promise and we keep our promises. So I, without further ado, here is Jeff and his baseball rant. Well, and I think you know what this rant will be about. First of all, we're recording this on February 7th right now with the release on the 12th of February. And we still have a lockout. We still have no baseball activities. And I am mad as hell and I can't take it any longer. (laughs) He's not going to take it. I am so pissed about this. Both sides, you know, they say... They they want a fair and bull, baloney. They want to win. Each side wants to you know to really do the worst they can do to each other. I mean, they really don't like each other. These sides they like a a bad marriage. They're next to a neighbor, but they can't break up because they need each other. <laughs> they are just so horrible to, to to watch this fight over millions and millions of dollars, and nobody nobody cares. Nobody cares. Do we care? We don't care. Just. Get it done and play ball. You know, you don't have to chase every last dollar like this, this fool Manfred's doing. I mean, he's, now he's opened up casinos and ballparks. They have sport books. I mean, come on, really? I don't know all the ins and outs of, of all the negotiations, obviously. But my God, there's got to be enough to, to sustain everybody. Jeez, you know, this is the billions and billions of dollars. And they, they, they're squabbling over it last dime. Just Get it done already. Can I say something, Jeff? Because I agree with you totally. They're killing the game. They are. They, their whole thing when they talk about, oh, we need to speed up the game because the, the youth of today, the new, the new audience, they don't like the speed of it. You, you know what, though? If there's no game, it won't matter how fast you play. You know, this will this will make two out of three seasons. There's going to be yeah. less than a full full season. And you know what? During the 2020 COVID season, there was only 60 games. Guess what people did in, in April, May, and June before they started playing? They adapted. They found other stuff to do. That's right. You know what? And they're going to, they, they're killing the game. They are absolutely killing the game. They got to figure it out. Got to figure it out. There I'm, are diehards. I'm, I'm so disgusted. I'm done. There. <laughs> Jeff, don't run out of the room. There are diehards like us who will miss the game, but there are people that will casual observers or whatever, and they'll just find something else. Yes. Okay. The players think that the owners need the players because without the players, there's nothing, there's no product to put on the field and the play and the owners without the owners then where are you playing? What stadiums are you playing in? What teams are you playing for? Okay. They need each other. I understand that whatever they're arguing about, the the minimum, the league minimum for a player, the 25th player on the bench 
the league minimum is incredible. Yes, I know. It takes a lot to get to that point. But come on, they've got to come to a compromise. They're killing the game. They are killing this game. And you know what? One day, one day it's going to go the way of, I don't know, maybe boxing. You know, did anybody ever think that boxing would be, you know, not that popular? I mean, what's popular now? It's not boxing. It's mixed martial arts. That's what's popular, right? Yep. Boxing's not so popular anymore. I mean, yes, you got some fights that are, you know, big. But and one day, if that happens to baseball and they are wondering where the audience go, don't be shocked because it's going to happen. Yeah, because they, they're killing the game. They're killing the game. Anyway, let's let's end on a uh, on a better note. OK, on a happy note. Let's on a happier note. Yes. You can listen With to our podcast. Pretty... There's, there's plenty of baseball <laughs> content out there. But listen to us, then listen to everybody else. Exactly. And now let's listen. Let's let's end with a pretty song from our friends, the poet, Shel Kukowski, the musician, Dave Dresser. As we leave you with Ace and Bobo, and we bid you adieu, Episode 121 is done, and we look forward to seeing you on episode 121.
Jingle.